0: Hey everyone. Assuming this works. Uh, welcome to open space for Monday, uh, November 23rd, 2020. Uh, once again, this is my live, uh, QA where you can ask me any questions you want about space or astronomy or anything. Although I don't have answers for anything else. Um, uh, but yeah, so go ahead and post, comment in the in the in the YouTube chat. And I will uh, get going on that uh, a little housekeeping before we actually get on to uh, to the question, don't give you a chance to uh, put all your questions in. Um, so we had to cancel last week's episode with Chris Carr because my power went out for a whole day. We went crazy. Uh, <laughs> you, you realize how how much you're dependent on internet. And and power when it goes out, uh, went out on, let's see, was it Tuesday last week? And uh, yeah, yeah, it was, it was Lord of the Flies around here. Um, so it was pretty funny. My my son read a book. He read a whole book, um, which was great. He read, um, what did you read? Old Man's War. That's right. He read Old Man's War, which is a great book. Um And, uh, yeah, and I read a bunch of stuff and, and we mostly, we just, and then the, and then the internet went out and then we just, we just, I went for a lot of walks. We just waited. It was, it's crazy. 12 hours, no power. I bought another UPS just to try and get a little bit more power. Um, yeah, Zephan, Zephan saying like, Jerry rig power from the leaf. I wish I should be able to just plug my car into my house and have backup power. But, um, yeah. zone. sounds like the power should go off more often. It, it's a funny thing. Like try it sometime, just shut your power off, shut your internet off and just, and just watch what happens to your mind and you realize how completely addicted you are to this thing. Um, you know, we were like holding our phones up in the air and trying to get, cause we have terrible, just, uh, cell phone connectivity from my house. And so I went for like a bunch of walks. So I could just get a little bit of work done to manage the team for universe today and then I would come home. And of course, normally, I would just go to a coffee shop and sit down and, and work in the coffee shop. But thanks COVID, we can't even do that. So yeah, madness. Um, crazy. Anyway, Uh, Yeah, so we had to cancel the thing with Chris Carr. So we're going to do that. We're going to reschedule that probably for next week. Um, I've got a fascinating interview that's probably going to be coming up in the next couple of weeks um, with a writer. He's a biologist, but he's done a lot. He's an astrobiologist. Uh, He wrote a book called The Biological Universe. And uh, we'll be talking to him about, you know, I'm sure we'll have an argument about where all the life is in the universe. So that should be coming up pretty soon. And apart from that, just we've got mountains of great stuff happening over on universe today. Uh, new episode of astronomy cast, great interview on the weekly space hangout last week with the uh, project manager of the, the Titan dragonfly. So if you want to hear about the dragonfly, check out the most recent weekly space hangouts. So we've got lots of good stuff uh, come out and lots more good stuff coming down the pike. So, all right. Um, Let's move on uh, to the question portion of the, of the show. Um, Michael Malmer asks, uh, how much longer will the earth be habitable? Uh, Now, so you have to kind of define what you mean by habitable. Now we know that the sun is going to be turning into a red giant in the next, I don't know, five plus billion years. So uh, we've definitely got a hard stop at the end when the sun bloats up into a red giant and maybe consumes the Earth, if it consumes the Earth, then the Earth is definitely toast. So we can definitely, you know, put a really hard stop right there. But the reality is is that the sun is heating up all the time, very slowly. Um, And over about the next 500 million to about a billion years, the sun will get so hot that it will increase the temperature on Earth and get it to the point that all the water boils away, and the surface of the earth is parched and dry. And so, and that has nothing to do with global warming. You know, that's, that's a, that's a long scale thing, not the, uh, the short, you know, the short term that we're seeing right now. Um, But yeah, so we're looking at about 500 million years to a billion years. And, and what's going to happen is that, is that life will go in reverse. So about 500 million years ago, we got some of the larger animals, larger life forms, and to the kinds of you know, the vast variety of life that we see now. And then as the temperature goes up and up and up, then the size of the animals, the kinds of plants that can survive will change and simplify. And then eventually, it'll just be bacteria living underground. Um for the, for the far, far future. So, and like, I know it's funny, right? Because we go, we have this sort of existential crisis when we hear that that the earth is going to be that we thought we had 5 billion years, but now we've only got 1 billion years and you're just like, Oh no, um, it won't matter to us. Right? Obviously we're, we're going to be gone in a hundred years. So, um, except for me, of course, with my robot bodies, but, for the vast majority of, of, of life on earth. Um, we're not gonna last that long, uh, except for me, blue whales anyway. Um, so it's, so I, so I always find it so funny when we sort of that the fact that, that we've only got a billion years left sort of causes this existential crisis in people. All right, let's move on. Ted Krause asks, the great conjunction is almost here. How long has it been since the all planet conjunction An all planet? I have no idea how long it has been since we've had an all planet conjunction, Um, but a conjunction as good because you can sort of imagine there's different versions of it. Like the one that's coming up and this is important, I've took this question, not because I knew the answer to your question, because I wanna just talk about the conjunction, um, which is uh, in December, you're gonna get Saturn and Jupiter so close to each other in the sky, that they will essentially be visible in a single telescope eyepiece. And, and you'll just like look in the eyepiece and you'll see both of them side by side, which has not happened for about 800 years. So this is big, but the part that's kind of crazy is that is that the planets are already, their moons are already starting to intermingle from our perspective as they're getting closer and closer in the sky, because it's only about a month away for this to happen. And so pretty soon, you're going to look and you're going to see some of the farthest, to the left moons of one planet, overlapping the farthest to the right moons of the other planet, it's gonna be kind of crazy. So it's a pretty special time on 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 what's happening. Um, And people are gonna freak out, like people are gonna get really excited about it. And I've been excited about this for years now. And of course, as we get closer and closer, we're going to try to reveal this during the star party, but buckle up, it's going to be great. And figure out a way. I mean, obviously, we'll bring it to you in the star party, we will do everything we can to have a special star party where we just live stream the conjunction. But, but I think for anybody else, um, you know, if you want to see this with your own eyeballs, figure out a way to do it so that you can see it, because it's going to be really special. And you're never going to get a chance to see this again. Um, But, you know, when has there been a time when you've been able to see Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Uranus, Neptune, Mercury, all in the same eyepiece, Venus. Um, I I can't imagine a time that that would have happened, um, but it would be pretty amazing to see. Um, but it's just like there can be different versions of how close they would be. You know, they might be all roughly in the same area as opposed to really tight. But this is just really tight. They're just going to be side by side. So. Um, so anyway, about a month away. Stay tuned. It's going to be big. It's going to be the big, I think it's going to be one of the big events of the year, of the decade. All right. Vegeta AFH. Hey, Fraser, do you think that nuclear power is a good option in space? Uh, So there's kind of two parts to this question. One is nuclear power as a propulsion system, and the other thing is nuclear power as an energy system, which could also be a propulsion system. So uh, the one idea is to use like a fission reactor, like, like exists down here on Earth, but you put it in space, and you use that to heat up some kind of propellant like hydrogen that you blast out the back of the rocket at a very high velocity. And this has been tested here on Earth. And it works really well. Um, Very efficient, very high thrust, uh, would would shorten travel times. But the downside, is that you've got to, uh, you know, you got to be running a fission reactor that is blasting out potentially radioactive hydrogen. So it works best in space. So it might not work that well down here on Earth, or it will have health risks if you fire off too many of these nuclear rockets from Earth. But once you're out in space, space is huge, who cares? So fire nuclear, your nuclear rocket, and blast your way across the um, across the solar system. The other method is to run a nuclear reactor to produce electricity. And of course, we do that down here on Earth. Uh, there are ways to do that in space. Um, the 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 Soviets back in the day launched a bunch of, of satellites with nuclear reactors on board and they and they were proven to work one crashed into the Arctic here in Canada, uh, didn't go over so well. Um, the Americans I think have launched one. Um, but for the longest time, it was sort of, you know, after the sort of nuclear panic, people were like, Okay, we don't want to, um, you know, with with like Three Mile Island and things like that, people didn't want to have anything to do with nuclear reactors. And then um, sort of there's been a growing interest. And in fact, NASA in the last last couple of years has starting to consider this idea of a uh, they call it the killer power, And so a way to have a nuclear reactor that is reasonably portable and you could put on various places like on the moon or maybe on Mars. And as you get farther and farther out from the sun, your ability to gather sunlight just goes down. Um, You know, you've got to have solar panels out at Jupiter that are like 25 times bigger than the solar panels that you can use here on Earth, Mars has, you know, is, is less efficient than Earth better than better than Jupiter. But really, Jupiter is the is the farthest you can go without some other kind, you know, unnuclear power system. And so you could use an, an RTG, like what's on the new horizons and curiosity and those spacecraft, or you could use some kind of nuclear reactor that's producing the electricity and it's it, it will work great. Um, you just have to deal with all the risks of getting fissile material onto a rocket up to space safely, not have it explode in the atmosphere, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, there's some, there's absolutely some projects being worked on right now by NASA and other people to have nuclear engines function in space. And it's a very good idea and it has some risks. So like anything, um, I'm gonna sneeze <laughs> Um, at some point. All right, uh, VZAC is asking, will we be streaming the total eclipse on December 14th? Maybe, uh, there's a total eclipse on the 14th? Huh, okay, maybe? I didn't know that was happening. So that shows you what I know, um, all right. So, Horizon Brave asks, what do you think is the next stage for the, n- the next International Space Station? Do you think there will be a complete replacement? Or will the current just be upgraded heavily? What do you think that looks like? So I I think, you know, tell me if I'm wrong. But the question that you're asking really is what is the future of the International Space Station? Will it just be maintained? Will it be replaced? What's going to happen? So let me tell you what we know today. And then I'll try to tell you what I think is a where I think things are gonna go. Um, so right now of course you got the International Space Station. It was launched back in the first parts of it launched essentially two decades ago. And since that launch, um, you know, the first core modules were built by both the Americans and the Russians. Uh, and that's why it's the International Space Station. Since then modules have been provided by the Europeans and the Japanese. And of course, uh, the tremendous Canadian built robotic arms that crawl all over the place and give you the thumbs up. Um, And so this has been going for 20 years and it is a machine. So like all machines, uh, it wears down and you could absolutely maintain it. You You could bring up replacement modules, take out modules that are starting to fail, bolt in new modules. And, and keep going from there. Right now, there's kind of a, a, a game of chicken being played between the Americans and the Russians. Both keep saying from time to time that they're thinking of not continuing to maintain it. Who knows what's going to happen after 2024. And then uh, after 2020, after 2024, I think right now there's commitments to maintain it until 2028 who knows whether the whether the Russians will be able to afford to continue maintaining their portion of it, whether the Americans will continue wanting to do it. Um, and at the same time, plans are being, you know, plans are working to build the Lunar Gateway, which is the uh, the, the space station that's going to be flying near to the moon. So as the emphasis goes to building that will that take away from any kind of maintenance cost to the International Space Station, at a certain point, they're going to get to the place where they're going to have to deorbit the space station and it won't be it won't be a long time like i wouldn't be surprised if in the next decade they decide it's time to to deorbit the international space station just like they deorbited mir and and previous space stations and they'll crash it into the the graveyard of the pacific and it'll be gone The most expensive, most complicated machine that humanity's ever built, uh, working for 30 years and then crashed into the ocean. And I mean, it sounds sad and tragic, but at the same time, it, its job was to teach us how to live and work and build things in space. And it did that job. And so it could be that you, there's much cheaper, much more effective, efficient methods. You build inflatable habitats, launch them. You can have the same you know one bigelow aerospace 2200 has the same volume capacity as a as the entire international space station and you could launch it on one uh starship right we talked about talked the last week about these things we launching multiple times a day one of those could contain a space station with the capacity of the entire international space station and then f- eight hours later launch another one on the same starship. So, um, so I think that, that there's just, they're constantly having this considering the cost, considering the maintenance cost and deciding what to do with it. And so they're just going to reach this point where it's clear that the space station is getting dangerous, that they're having more air leaks, that more of the oxygen scrubbers or are the carbon dioxide scrubbers are going offline, that, that there's a death happens. And then then it'll be time to bring that space station down. Um, I don't think it makes sense to just keep maintaining it when when there's just better technologies, techniques, new ideas, new hardware that can be built on the ground and and launched. So at a certain point, it'll just it'll be it'll be time for it to go. Um, and there is another international space station that is being constructed right now. And that's the Chinese version of the International Space Station. And they are partnering up with various countries around the world to to attach modules to their space station and uh, for other astronauts to come up and visit them. So even if the International Space Station is no longer functional, there will be the Chinese version of it, which of course is, you know, that's a hot potato politically. Um, That I I don't know how that's going to turn out. So anyway, uh, I think 10 years from now, there will be a Chinese space station there will be the lunar gateway and there may be another American private space station. We'll see what happens. All right. Uh, Neko girl, what are the chances of replacing air telescope? So again, uh, you know, since last week, we've learned that the, Uh, the National Science Foundation has decided to dismantle and decommission the Arecibo observatory. And this is after the various failures that have happened. Uh, the engineers when they were sort of working on Arecibo, when the one cable broke, they were assuming that the rest of the structure would be able to hold it while they could make repairs and, and keep moving forward. And then one of the cable, the other cables failed. And that told them that actually the damage, essentially the wear and tear on the entire structure is a lot worse than anybody was ever planning, expecting. And so it called into question, just literally just the state of all of the cables. And so then they're like, okay, do we go and replace every single tower, every single cable in this entire system? And when it's very dangerous to do so, what are, what are the risks? And as I think I mentioned this before, that Arecibo was kind of on a skeleton crew, very low funding, tragically underfunded for years. And it almost got canceled like a couple of years ago. Um, so it's not surprising that finding out was gonna be, a, you know, a $100 million repair bill to completely rebuild it and refurbish it, someone just went, nope, nope, just, just, it's over. <laughs> And I think that's where they're at. So I don't think that there are any plans to replace it. Um, And and it's also not as necessary as it once was, because there are new observatories coming online. Um, You know, of course, there's the Chinese, it's weird that we've got the same, same solution. Uh, There's the Chinese fast telescope, which is Uh, 500 meters across. So it's bigger than Arecibo, is the largest radio dish in the world, single radio dish in the world. Um, But you've also got the square kilometer array coming, which is going to be an incredible radio observatory, although it doesn't have sort of the same exact, exact characteristics. And then of course, we saw with the event horizon telescope that you can you can combine the light from multiple telescopes around the world to act like a single telescope that's a lot bigger. So I think if Arecibo was the only radio telescope on Earth, then they would absolutely be repairing it. Um, there are, you know, I've seen some some ideas from people that there are some pretty cool craters even in the United States that, you know, old lava craters, old lava domes, things like that, <clears throat> that you could... Um, that you could build a telescope in that would be roughly the same size or even bigger and get you that same effect. So who knows what will happen but but I don't think that there's any chance at this point that 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 are is going to be repaired and refurbished. I mean, I think they're going to keep running some experiments there, they're going to have the visitor center, they're going to have some other stuff that's there. But I don't think it's going to be a major science center anymore. Right. Let's keep going. Um, All right. Um, Bob Ohms, Fraser, why not at least let a satellite melt the ISS for scrap in orbit and turn it into trusses for a giant space telescope. That sounds so complicated. Um, Like the problem with getting things up into space has traditionally been the cost of the rocket. You build a space station module for a couple of hundred million dollars and then you spend a billion dollars to launch it into space. But now we're entering this time when you can launch something on a Falcon rocket for 60 million or a Falcon heavy for 90 million. So the launch costs are coming down significantly. And that said, we don't have any technology for being able to, um, to like melt down very complicated space you know something space station you just like take the whole thing and melt it down into a slag like it's aluminum and gold and copper and little pieces and plastic and all this mixed in like you're gonna want to dismantle it very carefully i can imagine a a future where they like one possibility is they could raise the orbit of the International Space Station. But but that causes risks as well, which is that now you've got the biggest piece of space junk up there that is no longer controlled, that could be broken apart. And then you've got just this spray of debris as it's just getting just getting sliced and diced year after year after year, turning into more debris. So either use that station or get rid of it. And that's, I think, the decision they're constantly going to be making. Um, so Kyle Kramer asks, what are your thoughts on Axiom space's plans for a commercial space station? Um, so, I mean, in case you didn't know, um, Axiom is planning to put a commercial module onto the international space station. And I think they've also talked about having their own space station. Um, I think that, trying to build a private space station right now is still a little premature until there is a an inexpensive launch system. So even the Falcon nine Falcon heavy isn't cheap enough to make a truly commercial space station economically feasible. Um, When you think about the uh, the expense that went into building International Space Station, the costs that were involved to get the astronauts up there, it's really, really expensive. Um, So I mean, right now it's going to be this sort of public private partnership where they attach a module to the international space station and then they lease out parts of this for private use, private experiments, rich space tourists, but I think you're going to run out of rich space tourists. Once something much cheaper starts to fly, like say starship, then you can readdress all of the costs. But right now in the expendable launch market world, I can't imagine a completely private space station being economically viable. It's kind of like what happens with asteroid mining companies, right? They all just go out of business. So I, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm not bullish over the short term prospects of, of a private space station. Uh, Definitely again, we, you know, we've talked about this before the, the second, um, starship starts to fly and you can launch monster payloads to space for a couple of million dollars. Everything changes. So until then, um, Eric one, uh, would they bring it all down at once or detach the various modules and deorbit them separately? Wow. We're just having, this is the international space station, the the end of the international space station episode. Um, So they would bring it all down in one piece. So there is a place in the Pacific Ocean, which they call the Pacific Graveyard. And it's the place that all the various space agencies try to crash their space stations into uh, or anything that can survive. Because with small satellites, they can they they burn up in the atmosphere and they're gone it's no problem you can just let them just deorbit. like when the starlings start to come back down they can just burn up wherever they like and there'll be no risk to anyone on the ground but if a space if a satellite gets big enough then chunks of it will make it through the atmosphere and and crash randomly onto the earth which of course we saw with skylab and and uh every couple of years we always get another one of these these uh scare when another satellite is about to come down. So you would just take the whole thing just like Mir, you put a bunch of rockets on it, and you would time things perfectly so that the whole thing deorbits nicely and goes straight into the Pacific graveyard. You'd warn everybody to stay away from it and then it would just burn up. It would be incredible. Like when the space station burns up, it'll be a sight to behold and then it will just all go right into the ocean and then that'll be that down to the bottom of the ocean. There are dozens of chunks of wreckage of, of satellites and space stations. All right. Wow. Lots of great questions. Um, all right. Suvojit 168 a uh, Betelgeuse is not going supernova anytime soon. Are there any other candidates for supernova that can be witnessed from earth in our lifetimes? Um, Yeah. Well, there are a bunch, um, Betelgeuse. We've learned fairly recently that Betelgeuse is actually a lot closer than we thought. And so it's not as close to the end of its life as we thought. And so maybe it's going to be an extra couple of hundred thousand years before it actually explodes. So I know every time you see it, you just like, you stare at Betelgeuse and with your mind, you're like, come on, explode already. Um, but the, uh, but it's probably not the most likely star to explode. The one that we think of that is most likely to explode is is a star called Etakarine. And it's about uh 50 times the mass of the sun. And it is just about ready to explode. Like it can go any day now. And when it does, it's gonna be absolutely visible in the sky to the southern hemisphere. Um, and in fact, you know, for a while there it used to be one of the brightest stars in the sky, and then it became a lot dimmer, either surrounded by dust or maybe it, you know, whatever was making it bright, it had flared off a bunch of times and has gotten a lot dimmer. But you can see some Hubble Space Telescope photos of, of like just the cool clouds of nebula around it. And it's, you know, it really looks like it's about to explode. So that's the one that's probably going to go, um, But the, you know, the one that happened most recently, the one back in the 1980s, supernova 1989, a 87 a happened in the large Magellanic cloud. And it was about 180,000, 170,000 light years away from us. And that is one of the most active supernova factories that we know of. And so it was no surprise that we saw one there. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see another one in that area. Um, before we see one closer to home here in the Milky Way, which is too bad because like, like I want to see another bright, really bright comet. I've, I, I, w- you know, I really, I want to see another, I want to see a full on meteor storm. Uh, I've seen pretty great auroras, but a supernova, that would be great. I'd love to see that. Yeah. Bill Sugden is saying in the chat, any day now means sometime in the next few thousand years. Yeah. yeah, that's what any day now, any day now, astrophysically speaking, is sometime in the next 100,000 years or so. Um, all right. Okay, so Liquid Flames asks, I've always wondered how they managed to find signals from the Voyager and other deep space probes. Should I be imagining their signals as a line spiraling out or as a bubble expanding out from them? So when you look at the Voyager spacecraft, look at a picture of the Voyager spacecraft. They've got a, um, Oh, John, Suffolk, are you asking me about the great attractor? Oh, you're trolling me, aren't you? Okay. Um, all right. So when you look at the, the Voyagers, they're mostly gigantic dish. And the big dish is what they use to communicate to and from the earth. And even so, they have to have on Earth, an even bigger dish, like a 90 meter radio dish to be able to receive the signal from Voyager, which is using its own dish, that's as big as it can, they were able to launch with it. Same thing, if you look at all the spacecraft, the the Voyagers, um, New Horizons, uh, Galileo, Cassini, they're all dish. And that's the way they communicate. And so yeah, it is absolutely targeted, that dish is pointed at Earth, An Earth's dish is pointed at Voyager, and then they are both putting out a radio cone of radio waves that are in in the general direction of the of the parabolic dish that they're that they're operating. Um, Think about how, you know, when you've got a satellite dish and you sort of have to point your satellite dish up in the sky, and then when you get it perfectly, then you can receive your television signal. And it's the same thing, except it's really far away, right? Light hours away from each other. And so, and even so, the Voyagers are, their, their signal is very faint on the Earth's biggest radio telescopes to be able to detect them. Um, But yeah, so it's not, it's not like a laser, but it's also not like Voyagers just kind of sending out a circular or spherical ping in all directions. Uh, Amy Scott and flower, you asked this question last week and I didn't get a chance to get to it. So we'll do it today. So would there be any way to add sufficient additional mass to Mars from somewhere else to give the planet one G of gravity and reignite its magnetic core? So let's think about your sources of mass here. So we know that the mass of, of the um, of Mars is like, what is it? It's about a quarter the mass of the Earth, one fifth the mass of the Earth, I forget exactly apologize. Normally, I have this stuff in my head. When I review the the uh, the video afterwards, I'll get it into my head again. Um, but yeah, and so that's so it cooled down relatively quickly. And it's, it's dynamo internally stopped. And it stopped having a magnetic field. But you look at Venus which has roughly the same mass as the Earth and it doesn't have a magnetic field. It doesn't have a dynamo. So there's got to be something more than just whether or not you've got sufficient mass to be able to have a global magnetic field. It might be that it's it's the the kinds of material like you need to have a certain percentage of of metal, you need a certain percentage of rock in your interior to generate that global magnetic field. So when you think about the raw material, um, you've got the asteroid belt, you can take the entire asteroid belt, which if you did that, if you piled it all into one thing, you'd end up with about 5% the mass of the moon. You could take the entire asteroid belt, feed it to Mars, and it would, it would barely increase the mass and volume of Mars. and would also uh, sort of like liquefy mars and turn it into just magma again if you tried to do that so you need something more significant like say mercury you, if you crash mercury into mars now we're talking um but still that's not enough uh you would pretty much need to crash venus into mars or really crash mars into venus and as we said already venus doesn't have a global magnetic field so last week, I know you wanted to fix Venus this week. I know you want to fix Mars. We can't be done. Just tear them apart, build the Dyson swarm. That's, you know, no, I mean, what we should do is leave Mars as a beautiful, pristine wilderness that we can go and visit and enjoy it for what it has crazy chasms mountains that are taller than anywhere else in the entire solar system um, one third gravity that you can use to jump around and enjoy uh, the, just think about standing on some one on one side of the of Valles marineris and looking across and seeing to the other side and looking down uh, kilometers to the bottom it'll be incredible So Mars sucks, but it's beautiful. And, and so it's fine just the way it is. And, you know, gravity worlds are for suckers. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Eric, here's a thought. Let's fix earth. Yeah. Yeah. Let's prove that we can fix earth first before we start smashing worlds into other worlds, trying to repair them. All right. Um, Kyle Hunt, are you looking forward to the next data releases from Gaia? What are the implications? I love all these softballs. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about Gaia. Uh, the Gaia mission, this is the European Space Agency's uh, mission, and it's doing astrometry, which is like a really complicated word, but essentially it's tracking the position and the motion of, of billion-plus stars in the Milky Way. And it's using that to figure out just how the Milky Way moves around how all the various individual stars, it's finding white dwarfs, it's finding neutron stars, it's helping figure out where the black holes might be. Um, And it one of the things was really cool, we did a video about this about showing they from the one data release, they released a, a essentially a data visualization of all the stars that they knew of, and it was, it looked like a photograph of the Milky Way, but it wasn't. It was actually just the, all of the points of the stars where they knew where it was. And it looked exactly like what you would see of the Milky Way in the sky. Incredible. Um, and Gaia's just getting started. The, the next big update that we're waiting from, for Gaia is it's going to be using this astrometry technique to track the motions of stars that are being orbited by planets. So you're going to see a you're gonna see a star and it's gonna make this tiny little circle in the sky. And that means that it's being yanked because of the gravity that's going, you know, the gravity of the planet that's going around it. And it's expected, and this is the part that you just like, like just let your mind roll with this, to find tens of thousands of planets. So, So we may find that in the next decade or so, We've got Kepler told us about several thousand, maybe Tess finds a few thousand. and then Guy tells us about another fifty thousand planets that, that people will go and observe. But the other part that's really crazy about it is that you've got, like with all of the stuff from Tess and Kepler, you've got to have this perfect lineup. You've got to have star planet passing right in front of the star, so that we can, so that we can see it. If the star is like a little bit above or a little bit below the planet, then we, we can't tell that there's a planet there using the transit technique or the radial velocity technique. But with the astrometry technique, you just look at it sideways. And so even if, if it's, you know, a little bit turned in different ways, I apologize for the people in the, in the com, in the listening to the podcast. Um, you, you know, as you at at many angles, you'll be able to detect this star being wiggled back and forth by the planet that's orbiting around it. And then you use that as targets for going after the direct imaging technique, which is what you're going to get from say James Webb space telescope or the Habex telescope or things like that. So you're going to get this kind of one, two punch. You're going to get the next big data release from Gaia. That's going to say, okay, everybody here are 50,000 planets here. Here are 50,000 stars with planets that we know of. And some of them are going to be close. And they will have never been, no one will have ever known that there are planets around these, these stars up until this point. And so they're going to be able to turn their telescopes, the extremely large telescope, the 39 meter extremely large telescope that's coming online in 2026 will be able to directly observe these planets. And so you, know, you think it's exciting now but you're going to get this incredible data release from Gaia and other discovery of, of planets, thanks to tests and direct and, and so on. And then you're going to be able to do these follow up observations with these monster telescopes, with the extremely large telescope and James Webb and things like that and see the planets directly as little dots, little blue dots. If they're if they've got water on them, orbiting around a star like, Right now, everything is just math, but we're about to shift into the next zone of looking for planets where we actually see them, and that's we're right around the corner now. Just hang in there. All right, Kaka um, uh, Silva asked, um, I don't understand if a star is seventy years. If the star is 70 year, that means it exploded 70 light years ago when we see it. Correct. Um, all right. So I'm going to try and sort of synthesize the question that I think you're asking, um, which is that when we see a star in the sky that explodes now, and if it's 70 light years away from us, then we know that it actually exploded 70 years ago and that's correct. Um, everything that we see out in the universe, we're seeing backwards in time. When we look at the moon, we're seeing the moon two seconds ago. When we see the sun, we're seeing the sun eight minutes ago. And when we see Andromeda, we're seeing Andromeda uh, one and a half million years ago, two and a half million years ago, I forget how far away it is, two and a half million years ago. And when we see the cosmic microwave background radiation, we're seeing the universe 13.8 billion years ago. And so you always have to remember that. And it's sort of like we're so used to everything we've seen being now, but then as we look farther and farther out, then everything is the past until we run out of time. And that's the edge of the observable universe. The edge of the observable universe is roughly the beginning of the universe. We can't see beyond it because we can't see before it. Um. All right blue jacket warrior. Hey, Fraser, any new discoveries about the PRC space program after learning Chinese? Um, yeah. So I talk about this on a semi-regular basis that I'm working on learning Mandarin Chinese and simpler, Mandarin Chinese and simplified Chinese writing. Um, I finished book one of remembering simplified Hansa, which is 1500 characters. I'm working on book two now, remembering simplified Hansa two. Which uh, adds another fifteen hundred characters. So in the next three months or so, I'll be capable of writing by hand about three thousand different Chinese characters. Uh, I can read now pretty well, um, but I, but I can read like fiction and uh, where people are just talking to each other. Uh, I have you know every now and then I've you know I've learned a bunch of stuff for for space stuff because that's the goal is to learn space stuff. Um, but there's a lot of really specialized, uh, terminology. So, but it is, it's kind of amazing. Now, uh, again, I've been at this for maybe nine months and like I watched part of the, uh, the Chinese long March launch today with the, uh, the Chang five, and I could read the rocket, you know, I could read a lot of the text that was coming up on the screen, uh, while they were doing it. So it's kind of amazing to sort of reprogram your brain to understand what used to be just, uh, completely unintelligible to something that now I can I can glance at Chinese and and understand what's being said. So it's kind of amazing. Uh, no insights. Um, I have to, like there's sort of this, <laughs> I have to rebuild my news gathering system, completely in Chinese, because all of the sources that I want to be able to get to have, you know, you find it on WeChat, or you find it on a Weibo, or you find it on various Chinese websites. And you have to be able to read this stuff and be able to navigate this stuff around and know which links to click and and understand where to go and what to see. And then you listen to an interview, and you gotta be able to listen to what people are saying and understand what they're talking about. And what they're talking about is very technical. So so my guess at this point is, you know, I'll be able to watch just like Chinese romances, which are like the easiest ones. I've I've sort of parsed out all the text, and I find that like sappy Chinese romances are the ones that are the most accessible to me right now, in terms of just understanding what people are talking about. And then I'm going to try to shift into um, news, specifically kind of science news and build up all that vocabulary. um, And then be able to then shift into being able to understand fairly, you know, science related information, and be able to communicate. So I, I figure I will be useful for you in this capability. I'll have this capability come online in probably another two years or so. I'll be able to start doing some some useful stuff in Chinese. So it's it's still gonna, it's a long haul. This is a tough one. Uh, so, AV's <laughs> um, cotton fla- flower. Fraser Loki forcing the demise of the West and having to move to Asia when the CCP falls. No, I. I think it's just I mean, you know, I want to keep my brain active. And so I want to give myself a rough challenge. But also, um, uh, you know, they launch half the rockets in the world at this point, they're building a space station, they're sending missions, they're sending a sample return mission to the moon, Uh, they're going to be sending humans to the moon, it seems important to understand their that that language. So it's kind of fun. (laughs) Rich Wilson says, yeah, Fraser with Chinese, Pamela with Russian. We're doing well with the international, uh, six, Bob Ohms is saying it would be cool to learn Indian too." uh, ISRO is legit. Absolutely. ISRO is incredible. I mean, the, the work that the Indian space agency does is great. Um, fortunately for the rest of us, they do a really good job of, of putting out all their information in English. I mean, uh, you know, So they make it too easy on us by communicating in English and making it really accessible. Uh, Japanese would be cool too. But I'm like, I'm not gonna try and learn more languages. One is tough. All right. Um, AAU, do you think that the TMT will be built at its planned location? And should it be? It seems like momentum is on the side of the protesters, any other places where it could be built. So you're talking about the 30 meter telescope. And this is the telescope that was originally planned to be built up at Mauna Kea with the rest of the big telescopes there. And, you know, they ran afoul of the sort of of local people and local customs and uh sort of incomplete treaties and uh you know it's a mess and the protesters caused a lot of sort of um they brought a lot of light to the situation and made it a really big controversy that has now stalled the development of the TMT um you know it was the it was the main thing that we were talking about when we were at the at the American uh astronomy society meeting in Hawaii, uh, earlier this year, like forever ago. Um, And, and I was actually great, I got a chance to sit down with, like one of the main people, I got a chance to talk to like the one of the main people who is like one of the local not protester exactly, but sort of one of the local politicians, but but he was um, Hawaiian origin, native Hawaiian, and sort of had a really great nuanced view about what was going to be happening and and why it was handled so poorly and, and, and what he thought it would take to be able to move everything forward. And I got a chance to talk to the astronomers and, you know, sort of technically. And where I think we stand right now is is I don't think it's going to get built in Hawaii. I think that that it's going to the alternate site is the Canary Islands in, in Spain, where you know, most of the rest of the north, northern hemisphere giant telescopes are built. And according to the astronomers, it's worse, but like a little less worse, like or a little less good, like it's not terrible to put it in the Canary Islands, it would be perfect. at Mauna Kea, it'll be fine at the Canary Islands. Good enough. And of course, Spain has said, bring it, let's do it. We're ready. (laughs) You know, sign sign these papers and let's get building the 30 meter telescope. So I think that that at a certain point, the 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 protests aren't going to go away, the getting it built wasn't handled well. And now they're paying the price and I think, I think it's going to collapse and they're going to move it to the Canary Islands because I think it just, it just made, you know, there's no controversy. Um, it's still a great scientific site for a big telescope. Um, I think we're going to see the Canary Islands be the main site of large observatories for the Northern Hemisphere. It's really too bad. I mean, the, the Southern Hemisphere sites in Chile are so good. Uh, the Northern Hemisphere just doesn't hold a you know, candle compared to what they've got in the Southern hemisphere, the Atacama desert, which is like super dry, but also really high up. It's perfect. There's no other place on earth. That's as good. Well, okay. Antarctica is the best. If you want to, you want to build a telescope, you put it in Antarctica. That is the best place. It's just the worst place for humans to survive. Um, John Suffield, can you see greater cooperation between various space agencies, despite political boundaries between NASA, China, Russia and ESA? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that we've now seen what is it, eight countries sign the Artemis Accords. Uh, and this is to define the rules for um, for exploring the moon. So you've got um, you know, Canada, the US, Japan, uh, Europe. UAE i forget all the others but not Russia not China the the international space station really wouldn't have gotten built without that inter- international cooperation it really required the the capabilities of Russia the capabilities of the United States you know as well as the capabilities of other countries as well as just more money to pay for everything to get built and it just probably would it would not have gotten built in the in the scale that it got built without that international cooperation. Um, But it's not necessary, it's helpful. And I think we benefit from it in terms of just peace and cooperation. And that makes me happy. But it's not necessary. And especially as, as the costs of launchers come down. It just it just doesn't make sense to build these giant cathedrals in the sky anymore. You, uh, you launch an inflatable habitat and on a starship, and then Six months later, you bring it back down, fix it up and launch it again. Like, like, and I I, I feel like I kind of keep going back over this, which is that we just our brains are not ready to comprehend what a incredibly inexpensive launch system is going to do for how access to space works. Right now, you launch the Hubble Space Telescope on the space shuttle, it costs you billions of dollars to build it, it costs you a billion and a half dollars to launch it. And then every time you got to repair it, it costs you a billion and a half dollars with highly trained astronauts to go up there and make repairs in the future starship, You know, you build a telescope that is nine meters across 18 meters long. It just sits inside the starship. You launch it. It works for a couple of months. Then you pick it up back again with the starship, bring it back home upgrade it, launch it again. So uh, it's just it's a different, it's a, it's gonna be a different world. So, you know, I, the level of international non cooperation, just in general makes me sad. Like, I do think that, that the world is made a better place when there are freer borders, when there's international trade, um, when when people can live and work, in in different countries that they're not they're not bounded by where they happen to be born where they happen to whichever laws they happen to be born into Um, and i think that that we should have more collaboration just across this whole country the 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 thing that makes the world the most peaceful place is is trade in in you know you're not going to want to go to war with someone because you do all you do all this trade together And I think that's one of the greatest sort of damping effects on on people being uh, grumpy with each other is the fact that they depend on each other. And so more things that will make people dependent on each other, the better, I think. And, and if you can have that with space flight, that's cool, too. So yeah, my preference would be everybody gets to go and be part of the Chinese space station and vice versa. And just to create these barriers is, I think it's, short term appeal, long term uh, decline. Um, Let's see. I'm gonna go back a bit. There's a lot of uh, uh, Chris March is asking how well is the quantity of mass energy in the no longer observable universe known? Remember, you made a statement in a previous recording about the quantity. I'm I'm not sure I mean, we don't know how big the actual universe is, we can only see the observable universe. So if there's whatever 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe, the actual universe might be infinite. And so it just goes on forever. Um, uh, and so like, what is, you know, what fraction is 2 trillion galaxies of infinity? I think it's, you know, I don't think you can divide by infinity. Um, so we know that the future accessible universe to us, if we could invent light speed tomorrow, um, or be able to travel at just shy of the speed of light, then we could only get to about six percent of the entire universe that not, of the observable universe. So of the of the of the hundred percent that we can see, uh, we can only ever get to about uh, 6% of it, the rest is going to go faster and faster and faster, and fall over the cosmic horizon and be gone. So we don't have a lot of, uh, of the universe that we can actually travel to, although it I mean, it's it's an incomprehensible amount when you really think about it. But, but as a fraction of the total universe is not a lot. But I don't know, um, like how much like I don't think any of it has actually fallen over the cosmic horizon from our perspective yet. That's That that was stuff we used to be able to see, but now we can't see. Um, let's see. Man, so many good questions. Uh, Chris Marsh. Is the Extremely Large Telescope really a future proof name? Did someone figure we'd only have a few more telescopes after that? There's a classic XKCD comic where they they go beyond. You've got the the Very large telescope, the extremely large telescope, the overwhelmingly large telescope, and those are all real uh, telescopes. And then you keep going on beyond that and all the future gigantic, terrifying telescope names. Um, Six Bob Ohms is saying uh, S- S- Sabina Hassefelder worked out warp drive on Saturday, kind of. Yeah, I saw so for. Uh, uh, I saw this that Sabina Hossenfelder, who is a very distinguished uh, particle physicist and YouTuber and science communicator, um, is did a video recently about a what she thinks is a pretty legit idea for a warp drive. But she didn't share the paper, so so I guess she only got access to the paper so far, and it hasn't gone in through peer review yet, and so nobody's had a chance to actually take a look at it. At the same time, Sabina Hasenfelder is legit. So if she says it's a cool idea, then it's probably a cool idea. Um, but but the rest of us can't talk about it until we get a chance to actually look at the paper. So um, we're kind of stuck. Watch her video. Do a search, Sabina Hasenfelder, uh, watch her video, and then as soon as the actual paper comes out, then of course we'll cover it uh, on Universe Today. Um, all right, we got like a couple of minutes left. So. So I just want to remind everybody that if uh, you didn't get a chance to get your question answered here, um, definitely put the question in the comments and I will try to answer a bunch of them afterwards, not in the comments, the chat because that disappears. But just in the video chat comments after the way you know, normally, you know, that cesspool that you find on other YouTube videos. Post it there. Um, uh, Cabeza de Vaca. Fraser, would would a telescope on Mars see that Hubble does not see? Nothing. Uh, There's no value putting a telescope on Mars compared to having a telescope in near Earth space. It's not like you're closer to anything. Um, I mean, maybe you would be closer to seeing features on Mars. But apart from that, maybe Phobos, if you had a telescope on Mars, you could see Phobos and Deimos really well. Uh, But apart from that, um, you know, because you can build a much bigger telescope on Earth, that would do better than the expense of building a telescope on Mars. There are some ideas to build a telescope on the like the far side of the moon. But um, that's, you know, it's more about taking advantage of the fact that the moon has gravity, and you could go to the far side where it would be radio quiet. Uh, There's, of course, this idea of a 100 meter rotating liquid metal telescope on the moon, that's an idea. Um, But yeah, to go farther than that, there's there's no better place to put a telescope than really close to the Earth. Except um, that uh, There's essentially there's this dust that's around the inner solar system, um, which you can see it, it's this stuff called zodiacal dust. And so as you look with a telescope, you can see this dust in the in the sky. and, And it's really it's sunlight glinting off of dust in the plane of the ecliptic and so if you wanted to have like the best telescope location you'd want to get outside of the solar system like maybe out to around pluto or so and then you would have a really clear dust free view of the sky so maybe that will be a future gigantic telescope something out on pluto so maybe that's a use for pluto All right. Uh, we've reached the end of our hour. Thank you everybody for joining me this week. I really enjoy this. Uh, of course, if you have any questions, comments, if you're watching this and you're like, man, I wish I could, I don't have time for YouTube. Uh, don't forget that I release the audio of all of these on my, um, on my podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes, um, as well as, um, no, that's just it podcast. So yeah, Um, and I'll put a link in the newsletter as well. So if you forget about it, or if YouTube doesn't tell you that it happened, definitely make sure you check the newsletter because I'll post a link to all the stuff that we do. You can go to universe today.com slash newsletter and the podcast, just do a search for universe today on all your podcast things and you will be able to find it. All right. Well, thank you everybody. Thank you to the mods. Thanks to Nancy for posting all the comments over there. That was awesome. I really appreciate it. And, uh, next thing that's coming up is the weekly space hangout on Wednesday. All right. We'll see y'all later. Take care.